0: Hi, this is Panel Beter and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. Good morning, good morning. I can't help but laugh at Dr. Sharma's entrance right on the right on the hour.
1: What are you talking about very relaxed Sunday morning call. <laughs> I didn't at all forget that I've moved houses this week and my ETA needs to be just about a good 15 minutes you can, Wha-
0: you can hear the breathlessness in his voice. <laughs> welcome fit. aboard and hey, welcome to you uh, Dr. Neo. Thank you thank you. Got a big big show but first we get to the before we get to the details of the show just um, gentlemen how are you?
1: Um, well, except for the, the fact that I've moved homes, and uh, <laughs> how did that go? Very traumatizing.
0: Yeah, they say they say that um, um, moving, along with changing a job, uh, divorce, uh three and and death of a loved one um, are the big ones, aren't they?
1: Well, I, I, I didn't know ranked so highly, but <laughs> I tell you what, I, I believe it now. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, there's all the, there's the, the the physics of it, of course, of just moving, you know. and everything you, you have but did the couch the
0: in the fridge get through the doorways
1: no problem uh I don't, pro- problem definitely <coughs> problem uh so and a lot of items didn't make it it was a good opportunity though just to to, to, to clean and uh yeah right. and and you know just just take stock of what it is that you really actually need
0: <laughs> did you do some purging
1: i did that's what made it so difficult right yeah. right okay what kind of purging? Was there a pattern to what you were purging? Well, there, there, there was, right? So in t- context of COVID, of course, uh, any and all of my kind of stage performing, any, all that magic stuff that I do, mm-hmm. uh, I you know, had to, to, to see if it's actually worth moving uh, along to this new house. Uh, am I going to continue this? Am I not? Yeah, right. so, so when you're doing the pick and choosing what you're going to take across uh-huh. – God, the, the weight that comes with those decisions is yeah, yeah, enormous. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's almost like you're, you're deciding you know, what part your life is going to take.
0: Are you completely settled now?
1: I wouldn't say completely, but yeah, absolutely getting there. I've done the amazing thing of getting everything out of boxes hmm. within a few days. I, I didn't think I was, I well was capable of that. Thank you. Do they all
2: have a place or are they just on the floor?
1: Look, yeah, see, you really, you, you brought the mood down. I was so proud of what I've done. Uh, there is a room of shame. <laughs>
0: Unpacked the boxes. Yeah, you? exactly. <laughs> yeah. You just dumped them on the floor. <laughs> Tipped them over. Dr. Neo, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, you had a good week? Yeah, yeah, no, I've had a great week. It's just,
2: uh, you know, the usual usual work for me. At Lockdown doesn't really uh, change what I do. Get up, go to work, come home. Um, so it's, <laughs> Seems like I've almost missed the lockdown. It's, yeah, right. You get a, a couple of uh, additional bits of PPE at work, and everything's uh, there's a few more, um, few more COVID tests flying around the hospital. But apart from that, life doesn't change.
1: Isn't it fascinating? Just that complete alternate reality of healthcare workers yeah. throughout this pandemic. Yep. There is Completely. no stopping at all.
0: No. The um, So you guys may have missed it. As, as a non-frontline person, I certainly felt it. That that exhale of relief when the lockdown wasn't going to be extended, mm. you know, <laughs> it, it, it was palpable as far as I could tell. Oh,
1: look, at tell you what, I was relieved too because, again, oh, well. I think as, as Dr Neo will attest – it can actually be an incredibly isolating time for for us because mm. you have all the stress of right. work, no one to debrief with, especially if you're living alone. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we're relaxed too, but certainly not to the extent that I think a lot of other people um, will be relieved by that for sure. I,
2: I think that for the healthcare workers, it's it's that moment when you can step down from the really intense PPE back to just face masks where you take a big sigh of relief. Yeah. It's just that extra bits of PPE that you spend all your day in. Just it's... Uh, it is taxing It's taxing Yeah And you don't think It's that going to be that taxing But by the, the second week I was at the end of it Like I'm,
0: I'm sick of it I'm, I'm, I need to be out of this Done Done Hey uh, let's uh, turn our mind To what's coming up On the show Dr mm-hmm. Neo You've got something special Lined up for us Yeah Yeah We've
2: got a really Exciting guest um, It's going to be The scientific director Of Gen V Professor Melissa Wake Now for those of you Who don't know um, What Gen V is It's this Kind of you know, Australia first um, population study of of our of our state's children, and it's going to be following them through for a number of years. and Professor Wake's going to tell you all about it. And you know, some of our some of our listeners may even be enrolled in this study, which is one of the exciting things. It's. Brilliant. I love these
0: sorts of things, these longitudinal and population yeah. level studies. Yeah, yeah Good stuff. Um, and uh, Dr Sharma, you've got something less cheery to talk to us about a bit later.
1: Less cheery, but at least we're seeing some positive developments. We'll be talking about the sad and sorry case of little Tanika Murugupan, who's currently in hospital. But like I said, there are some, uh, some developments that are a little relieving, although on the whole, the saga is still quite a depressing one.
0: We'll get to that at the tail end. And uh, I've got a little item that I'm keen to pick the brains uh, in the room on um, about bias in patient care. Um, A really interesting article uh, was published in the Journal of Health and Social Behaviour just in the last couple of weeks titled, We're a little biased, medicine and the management of bias, and they use the case of contraception um, advice um, to try and work out where bias occurs. Um, And I'm looking forward to hearing um, uh, some perspectives on that. Um, And I've got a few of my own to share. So we'll get to that uh, shortly.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
2: We are um, absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Melissa Wake who is a paediatrician and scientific director of the Generation Victoria Initiative, led from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute at Melbourne's Royal Children's Hospital. Her population paediatrics research spans common childhood conditions and antecedents of disease of ageing. Her work spans trials, screening registries, life course studies and creation of open science data resources that integrate molecular, phenotypic and societal and geospatial dimensions. Professor Waite, can you hear us? Um, so, welcome to Triple R. Good
4: morning, and thank you for having me.
2: No, it's our pleasure. So, I, I think um, you know a lot of our a lot of our listeners are probably young parents, um, and you know some of them may even be new parents. Um, but for the, the ones that aren't uh, involved in your study directly, I think naturally our first question is: What exactly is Gen V? The
4: Gen V or Well, Generation Victoria is a very large new study that's just launching now across Victoria. And it's really about offering the possibilities of a better future for us all. We're we're aiming to approach up to 150 babies born over the next two years and their parents and ask for their permission to gather information and follow them into the future. And that will help us to build a research platform to better understand childhood problems like asthma, food, alcohol, obesity, mental illness um, and adult problems like heart disease, cancer um, and a whole range of issues of ageing.
2: Sorry, Professor Wake, I think you may have just dropped out a little bit there. Was it 150,000 participants? Yes,
4: 150,000 babies born over the next two years right
2: across after- So I think we're interested in what data specifically will these parents and these participants be um, be giving to you?
4: Um, So we're asking people to um, agree to um, several different components. Um, So firstly, is to follow them up and ask them questions and assessments as their child and they get older, um, which we'll do by contacting people regularly for very short um, um, periods of time via their devices. We're also asking their permission to link in to um, the very wide range of information that's already collected and stored um, through Everyday Life and Everyday Services. Um, so when you go to see your doctor or your maternal and um information is stored and it's really not used at the moment to provide benefit back to parents um, or to families or children. And by bringing um, both kinds of data into Gen v, hope it will really make a difference. And then the last component is um, agreement to bring in biosamples so we can look at the underpinnings, the molecular, the genetic underpinnings of health um, and disease as people life.
1: Professor, this seems like an enormous uh, undertaking. I'm wondering, are there other similar projects that have occurred in the past? Of well, Clearly, probably not to this kind of extent, uh, but if there have been, uh, what have they identified or what have been potential gaps uh, in the information they've gained uh, that you're hoping to address?
4: So there have been um, a number of large studies before, and certainly here in Australia and, and at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute where i We have a large number of fantastic and very deep studies that have been running over a number of years. They tend to be much smaller. Um, This is one of the very, very few, very large um, studies for children and parents. There have been or there are some incredible, really big studies um, internationally for older people. Um, So studies like the UK Biobank that has half a million um, older adults recruited between 40 and 60 years of. Are really, studies of old age, and they've really transformed policy and practice and research for those older age groups. But there hasn't been anything like that um, at the beginning of life, and that's where we have the opportunities um, really prevent disease, um, promote the best health, um, learn how children can get onto the very best trajectories um, for a healthy and fulfilling life, and then for their parents to kind of at that kind of peak. Uh, Best age, if you like, of adulthood, early adulthood, to really look at opportunities for prevention um, of the sorts of um, issues that people face as they get older. So, real prevention opportunities at a very large scale is is what's different about it.
2: Yeah. So, on more on these, you know, this prevention model, it's a pretty unique opportunity to be given the chance to receive such a large cross-sectional um, look at genetic information of uh, this cohort of births what are your plans around integrating this genomic information with the rest of the data set? Like, are we are we trying to find the how our environmental factors impact our DNA or impact adult disease? Is that is that one of the the, um, the goals of this study?
4: Yeah, well, firstly, I would say that um, collecting biosamples is not just about um, genetics, it's about a whole range of other things. So uh, a really hot area right now is under how our microbiomes, the, 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 the bugs that live within us, um, how they help to keep us healthy and well or contribute to disease. Um, and there's, there's many areas of biological, molecular um, science that are really important. In terms of um, genomics, um, that they offer real potential for things like precision prediction. So most parents, when they have a baby, their baby will already have a genetic test. Um, which can predict certain diseases and, and help to switch them off or prevent the um, the consequences. And what we're hoping um, through a study like JMB is that we can really add to that science so that you can get in information um, potentially new treatments or better prediction that will help people to live healthier lives. Mm.
0: Professor Wake, I was um, taking a look at uh, some of the information available to us online, um, and we'll get that out to our listeners on our socials as well. Um, and looking at um, the breakdown of the focus areas and the framework that you're using, can you just talk us through that uh, at, at that approach you're taking? Sure.
4: Um, what,
0: what do you mean by frameworks? Oh, there was a, a, I was reading that there was a framework that captured four, uh, six focus areas, infection, immunity and allergy, organ health, healthy environments, obesity, diabetes, mental health, well-being and development and learning. And um, I was just wondering how, how those were arrived at and how they're playing out in the, um, in the rollout of the research.
4: Sure. Well, first and foremost, um, with GenV, um, w- one of the reasons that we are mounting GenV is kind of the, the understanding that, that doing research is normally very slow, very laborious, partly because we don't actually kind of have the, um, um, the platforms, if you like. Um, we don't have ready-built data sets or very large cohorts like this within which new questions can be asked very easily and very quickly. So often we have to wait many years if we take each question one by one. What we're trying to do with GNV is to build a ready-made platform. Um, as you mentioned before, it, it's intended to be open science. So if there are real questions, important questions from um, bona fide researchers, they can ask bring their questions to it. So those areas that you just mentioned, um, they won't be the only ones, but they are the ones that um, when we were doing the initial consultation over many years before GMV started, they were the ones that People were saying, look, there's really important questions here that we must understand. Um, we're, you know, in an epoch of allergic diseases, for instance, we don't know how to turn that epidemic off. Perhaps mm. Gen B can help. Mm. So they've really come from the field. They've come from policymakers. They've come from families. They've come from researchers. They've come from survey providers who say, look, you know, these issues are new or these issues are issues that were here 30 years ago. We're not making progress. can GNB help and so we're setting it up in terms of the information it collects and um, the way it's designed so that people can bring those questions to it.
0: I'm just um, of those focus areas one that jumped out at me was um, healthy environments Um, I'm not not sure I um, am confident I understand what that means am I right on the right track if I'm thinking about that's the uh, environment in which the child is being brought up or is that or is this prenatal?
4: Yeah yeah uh, well um, environments mean many different things to many different people. Um, but if you think about environments, there's kind of um, our internal environment, which is um, our biology, if you like. Then there's our um, home, our family, um, where we indoor environment. And many people live in less than optimal environments. There may be um, smoke. Um, there may be you know adverse lighting. There may be mould. A whole range of things can influence your indoor environment. Beyond that, there's the outdoor environment, um, so air pollution, um, UV light, um, how much green space we have, how much blue space we have, all of those sorts of things, and it's proved very difficult previously to bring all of those um, indoor, outdoor, and internal environments together to really um, understand how they influence health and wellbeing and what can be done to improve them, so sorts of... Thinking about, of course, uh, you know, can we bring some um, new evidence to urban planning, for instance, right, uh, right. to help um, build better outdoor environments?
0: That sounds wonderful. I'm the I'm the non-medico of the three of us here, Professor Wake, so I sort of come at it from the um, I guess the sociological point of view on that front. So, will this capture issues around um, poverty, for example?
4: Yeah, one of the um, key drivers of Gen V is to be able. to To include people from all walks of life, wherever they live, whether it's country or in the city, rich, poor, whatever language. Um, And to include large numbers of people who are often not included in the and so their issues are often not well understood in the context of um, the rest of the population. And one of our aims is to um, really make it easy for everybody to take part so that those voices can help. Shape GenV, and that we can uh, ensure that GenV addresses the issues that are of concern to them.
2: Um, Professor White, there seems like there's going to be a lot of sensitive information involved in this study. Given some recent news around health services being hacked and having sensitive data stolen or threatened, uh, what assurances or countermeasures are being taken by GenV to keep all this in-depth and personal information safe?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's one that we're often asked. Uh, um, by, by people. Um, we're, we're building the Gen V um, uh, um, systems to be absolutely as safe and secure as they can be. Um, so state security really, um, you know, separating out people's um, personal information from their health information and really making sure that anybody who accesses those data um, are, are safe. If you like, we're offering under under some principles the five safes, which talks about safe people, safe places, safe, safe outputs, safe data, and really um, updating and making sure that everything is as safe and as private as it possibly can be. And, you know, we recognise that taking part in something like GND takes trust. And, you know, many of the great advances that we've seen over the last 50 years behind those great advances, like, you know, when I was a kid, if, if a child got leukaemia, it was the death sentence, now it's not mm. and that's because people have put their trust in research and researchers to enable these great discoveries to be made and we really are looking forward to a bright bright future for Gen B as well. Mm. Um, I would say as well that it's absolutely um, people's choice to take part or not this is a consented study so we tell people about GenV and then they have the choice to take part and so far many many people are choosing to take part.
2: yeah on that point just what kind of proportion of parents who have already um, had children in 2021 have signed up for GenV?
4: Um, at the moment we're just rolling out um, so GenV's been in planning now for about 10 years we launched our Vanguard at the beginning of um, December and we've just started rolling out to all birthing hospitals right across Victoria um, as of um, the middle of May. Um, so, so far it's being met very positively by mm-hmm. parents but we're expecting to be, um, operating fully statewide um, by around September of this year and then to recruit for two full years in all 60 birthing hospitals.
2: So I guess um, if parents are interested in signing up, how do, how do they contact you?
4: Well, we want every single family to have the opportunity to take part. So if you are planning to have a baby in the two years from um, the end of August onwards, anywhere in Victoria, we'll be based in every birthing hospital. You'll see our banners. Um, a the staff member will make contact with you either in the hospital um, or after you go home from the hospital, or also if, if you have a home birth as well. Um if you please call us, we would really love every single family to have the opportunity um, to take part. And by taking part, you know, you can really make a difference to the future of children and of adults.
2: And I guess finally, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are also wondering, as you know, service providers, students, researchers or policymakers, how do they get involved or get in touch?
4: Look, you know, they say it um, takes a village to raise, raise a child. It takes an entire state um, to raise a project like Gen V um, it's the work of many, there are many many opportunities for um, students, for researchers, for others to help us to build this amazing project so just get in touch with us um, parents um, collaborators um, you, you can simply go to the Gen V website and make contact with us and we would love to talk with you.
2: Excellent well thank you very much for your time today Professor Wake. Um, My pleasure So, we've been joined by Professor Melissa Wake, who is a paediatrician and scientific director of Gen V, an initiative led from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: Dr. Sharma. After a wonderful segment talking to Professor um, Wake, we've got something that's quite a bit different, but nonetheless, very, very important that we get some uh, attention to. It's
1: extremely important. It's very sobering. I mean, thankfully, I think we're seeing the the hints of some change and good news coming. Uh, But nonetheless, it's still a tragic story of a a little girl who's turning four years old today and is currently in a hospital uh, in Perth. Uh, so little Tarnika, you know, we seem to kind of be lost in the in the media cycle, but she's a she's a girl who's born in Australia, who has resided in Billiwella with her family, with her mum and dad and sister, who in 2018 uh, was was placed in detention and has been there ever since. And of course, the way the story of her medical illness has played out in the last two weeks has left us all feeling. A range of things, concerned and mortified, of course, but also quite an embarrassment. It's been a very vivid reckoning for us because this is the system we are all part of. We have elected, we have uh, endured, some of us have supported. Uh, But, of course, there's something about seeing uh, the entire issue play out through the lens of a sick child that has provided so much clarity uh, to a debate which has been up until now been so controversial um, I thought we could at least start off at looking at things from purely just the medical side of things mm. so if we go back to a couple of weeks ago we've got little Tanika. she's just about to turn four and uh, you know, we are told by reports, and these are details that her family have put out, so you know, to some extent I feel sometimes a little bit uncomfortable discussing case histories of people when we don't have their explicit can, uh, permission, but to be very clear, these are details their parents have put out in an effort for advocacy for their child and for their family. So Little Tarnika, uh roughly on the 24th of May, uh, started to have a fever and some cold symptoms, and the fever was... Yeah, about as mild as a fever we can get, 37.6 degrees. Uh, They went and sought medical assistance. They are on Christmas Island. Uh, So they are, uh, this is somewhere where they do have, as part of detention, access to doctors who they can consult to. But we'll talk about the limitations of that in a moment. And look, long story short, her fever goes on from one day to two days to a week. And as the time goes on, the parents became more and more concerned because the only treatment they've been offered is paracetamol and ibuprofen, which in the early phases can be quite a standard thing. You often have a fever which you don't really know much much about, but essentially as time went on, the parents became more and more concerned. And despite their efforts to escalate, uh, there was resistance. There was a limitation on how they could escalate up until you know, I suppose the, the punchline here is... Eventually, people realised this child is very sick, and she was transported to Perth, where the formal diagnosis was made. Was this child has sepsis? That means. Infection of microorganisms in the blood, uh, which is a very severe disease state, because then we're not just talking about the infection of one organ, we're talking about mm. uh, essentially every organ system being on kind of off knife's edge and reacting extremely poorly. It's a, it's, it's something that has a very high mortality rate once we, we get to that mm. point. And the question is, you know, I, I suppose there's so many ways to look at this, but even just from a medical viewpoint, mm. you know, the question is, you know, kind of how it how it came to this, because, you know, Dr. Neo, I think you'd know that. In the in in the initial phases of a fever in a child, uh, you, you can often get temperature thirty seven point six mm. and thirty eight, and a child can look quite well. And sometimes treatment is a bit generic, but mm. things change as time progresses, doesn't
2: it? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the, the disappointing things here is that if you've got a fever for you know a day, you know, one off thirty seven six, that's you know it's reasonable enough to. Um, to manage symptomatically and watch and wait. Mm. But the, the key point there is to watch and see how things develop. And if things are deteriorating, as in fever's getting worse, child is looking sicker, it's
0: you know your duty as a medical professional to investigate and to, to treat appropriately. Mm. Can I just... Um can you just give us some little bit more detail on sepsis? So it's uh, um, it's in the blood. It affects therefore it affects the whole body. How do you catch it on Christmas Island?
1: Oh, <laughs> you would hate to catch hate to catch it on Christmas Island. Do you mean when you catch it, do you mean actually get sepsis? In yeah, Christmas what's or? what's yeah. the prevalence so, of sepsis? And oh, okay. you know
0: what? Can, what assumptions can we make about the uh, Christmas Island?
1: Well, I suppose that the way to think about sepsis it can happen anywhere because it's essentially just a, a uh, an infection that progresses from, for example, I could have a, a foot ulcer which has a bacteria in it. I could have uh, a bacteria Pass. in my lungs that's mm. causing it. the question is is it progressing, I suppose, in a way past that organ and, you know, very layman's term, into the bloodstream. So this can happen with any given infection uh, if it progresses. Um, Now, we... rarely happens, I uh, suppose, that we can say in Australia, because the the idea being that we are, you know, in theory, a highly developed nation with tertiary hospitals. The irony. Exactly. And so, to actually come back to a, a phrase that Dr. Neo used, in the early phases of a febrile illness, as we say in the child, we can afford to watch and wait. But we can afford to watch and wait with the understanding that there are options available if the child gets sicker. Mm. Getting a second opinion, referring to a pediatrician, referring to a t- Tertiary paediatric healthcare centre uh, performing
2: not- investigations. Even on a thirty-seven six, you could afford to do a few investigations to see if you can find a focus or if there is something wrong. That's right.
1: Yeah, and, and in the early days, you, you know, you, you may not need to investigate one, two, even three days. It's not really an issue. But once we start to get to five, six, seven. 10 days, suddenly the, the set of diagnoses that I'm considering as a general practitioner at that 10th day, it's hmm. pretty uh, there's some pretty sinister stuff that I'm looking at, hmm. which I would not be at, at days two and three. And yet, where are these options? How quickly can these tests be turned around? Um, yeah, I have this option available to me in Melbourne or perhaps even in, in, in some regional parts of Australia, but you know, not on Christmas Island. Hmm. Um, that's kind of the concern here. And
2: one of the issues is that sepsis is a bacterial infection in the blood that is serious. So there's two types of bacterial infections. One that's mild, we call bacteremia. It's just the presence of bacteria in the blood, not necessarily having a, a serious response. And then there's sepsis, which is a life-threatening illness, which occurs from a bacterial infection, so a focus, not being treated. Hmm. So this child has a focus that has not been treated, which is de- turned into sepsis. That's That's the sequence of events that we've gone through here, and there is a very real potential that this child would never have gotten sepsis
0: if their initial focus was managed. Right, and that's where we start getting this where the story starts unfolding in very uncomfortable directions about you know the treatment of this family. An Australian, an Australian child, as you said, right at the top there, Dr Sharma, an Australian child um, facing circumstances beyond this little girl's control um, and now in hospital in Perth in a pretty bad shape, right?
1: Exactly. And look, the politics of this can be quite polarising for people, but when you look at every single aspect, firstly, you know, this is an Australian child, and uh, even though they were in detention, the fact that it's happening offshore in a place where there is you know, no kind of tertiary uh, health care... And- you know, even kind of accepting that for a moment, the fact that there were uh, legal mechanisms, the, the Medivac bill that was built to, to essentially, you know, if, if someone's health was seriously deteriorating, someone who's in detention, someone who's an asylum seeker, that we have a strict time frame in which to get them out and get them health care. If there is an urgent need, the fact that that's been repealed, hmm. um, you know, this is a bit of a reckoning for us that you know, no matter which of these steps you kind of agree with, we're now left with this this kind of worst case scenario uh, where it, we're just seeing the worst uh, manifestations of all this policy uh, you yeah. know, come out. And look, I suppose this is the only kind of the positive, uh, 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 positive story here is that we are seeing Several ministers, even ones who have uh, re- voted to repeal Medivac, we've got uh, MP Katie Allen kind of posting today that this, what's happening with uh, Little Tanaka can't be allowed to continue. Um, she's posted that you know publicly today. Um, you know we're seeing other uh, Liberal politicians also saying that you know perhaps some discretion needs to be to be applied here. Um, but you know, it's. It, it, Unfortunately, it takes a, you know, a sick child to make this happen, and
2: I think that's the point of this story. You know, um, as Dr. Sharma said at the top of of the the segment, we don't know the full story of this medical chart, of this medical history. We don't know exactly what happened. We're not uh, we're not attacking anyone's medical uh, you know, acumen or any saying that any there was any medical or legal issues here. What we're saying is that, you know. ideally this child would have been living in australia in their hometown in a house that they were born in town they were born in house that they grew up in and been managed in a hospital where this would potentially would have been caught earlier Hmm.
0: or not even had this infection at all our um our last show we discussed the uh the federal budget the health budget and um you know, that, that's um, overtly a political matter in relation to health. And th- now we sort of like come to this case study of mm-hmm. our health system, don't we? Um, and if you choose to treat it as a health system case study, then we can talk about it in a particular way. But, you know, um, the media, some aspects of the media are treating it as an immigration story mm-hmm. um, and, not, and not treating it as a health study. So the conversation goes in a very different direction you know they effectively become a family that's used um, as a um, as part of the deterrent uh, policy of, of um, uh, na- um, national security and border protection
1: and yet while people are perhaps trying to, to make it into an immigration story or a political story I, I think it's very obvious that the general public no matter what their political persuasion no matter what their policy persuasion, they are being persuaded that this is essentially a health issue, mm-hmm. and even yeah. broader than that, we could say a, a human rights issue. Yep. We're seeing the worm uh, turn, so to yep. speak, mm-hmm. uh, politically speaking, which is why I think we're seeing yep. um, you know, members of the Liberal Party kind of speak out privately and publicly, uh, because it, you know this is. This is really what the actual issue issue is right now. We have a, a four-year-old child who now seems to be improving, uh, by the way, it needs to be said. Uh, she's, um, she's had antibiotics. She's had the, the, the fantastic health care that we do have available in this country. Uh, she, she's eating now. Um, but then I suppose it brings up a broader issue now. Okay, she's improving. Where do we discharge her yeah, to? that's right. One of the principles in medicine <laughs> and, and paediatrics is you, know, you, you 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 aspire to a safe discharge, a safe discharge location, an environment. <sighs> is she safe to go back to this environment where we know um, there have yeah. been you know, strict limitations on treatment, That um, which, as Dr. Neo was saying, there's no guarantees here. But one would argue... Uh, it's very plausible that all this could have been avoided that's a that's plausible so is that where you discharge this child back to
2: i'm 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 imagining the um the medical notes from the social workers and the occupational therapists and the medical team just saying
0: not safe for discharge not safe for discharge can't can't discharge home <laughs> yeah. um what what is the prognosis? What you know, say there's a, an improvement um, as far as we know in reports. Um, you, but you you've made it very clear that sepsis should be treated as you no know, deadly. Um, what's the prognosis, as best you know?
1: Well, look, I suppose even within sepsis, there's there's kind of grades there. So, for example, uh, sepsis is one thing, but septic shock uh, that is extremely high mortality rates. So, septic shock occurs when, as Dr. Neo is saying, you, you have Uh, this blood-borne infection with clear effects on the body. But when the blood pressure starts to drop, well, that has an extremely high lethality. I haven't seen any reports of that uh, mentioned uh, in in the media. So uh, it would appear... That the the treatment may have kind of prevented that, especially as you know, the trend seems to be improving, and in medicine and paediatrics, especially the trend matters. So mm. I, I'm very much hoping from everything I'm reading that we've kind of dodged the worst here. Mm. But yeah, then there's the the other aspect of it, which is the the psychological impact of all this on this child, on this family, on, uh, and the the long term repercussions.
2: And you can already um, imagine the trauma that this child must have faced, being, you know. Sent to Christmas Island from uh, their loving, loving home and loving, loving town. It's just,
1: it's shocking stuff. I think even in uh, Christmas Island, a, a, fa- a family friend was trying to visit and they were prevented from doing so. When the family actually needed support because the parents are separated, uh, one to each, uh, one parent to each child, and uh, even then these kind of roadblocks being thrown up. You know, kids at that age. They can remember things. And, uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, and even if it's not kind of explicit memories, just the, the coping mechanisms and everything mm. kind of build in, this is long-term stuff. Uh, again, the, the, the positive aspect of this has been that the Murugupin family says they are just so heartened by the response of of Australians and Australia mm. and of course uh, their incredibly loyal hometown of Biluella uh,
0: are they fabulous
1: oh they they mm. want the family back yeah. Uh, yeah as they say sometimes you know they are us and they want them back so you know I'm you know so much of how this has played out has been a reflection of who we are I know oh. a lot of the rhetoric has been what's happening here this is not us this is not Australia well Clearly, it is. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, the the, the community in, in Beluella, that's also us. And that's the thing. We're not just one thing. We get to choose on every turn and we have, to, we have to make the choice that reflects the best us.
0: Really well said, Dr Sharma. Yeah, the who are we aspect of this story. Um, who are we and how we set up our health system? I mean, you know, we start as a who are we? Well, we have Medicare. Um, in um, In Australia, um, and that says something about how we value each other um, on a health level, um, but we can ask that who are we in relation to little case studies like this and I reckon it's a really important point you make about there's the who are we and how the doctors and nurses are responding and how they're voicing their engagement, how the um, hometown is voicing their engagement. But the political scientist in me just goes, yeah, but we're being held hostage by about 12 electorates <laughs> because clearly that's the only explanation.
1: It is. And look, as I said, you know, it seems the, uh, the the political winds are changing on this a little bit. So we may even get some discretion on this case. But to me, you know, the battle's still not over. We've still got the structure of the policies that's allowed this to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm hoping that that's changed as well.
0: Really interesting. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. We got a little bit of um, education on sepsis itself as well as the um, as well as the very um, tragic story of this young girl. Let's hope she's all well.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rr.org.au to find out how
0: bias in medical services provision this is bias at an organizational institutional level but also bias on the part of the practitioner a uh, a journal article um, the journal being the journal of health and social behavior um, took a look at uh, bias in uh, medicine and, and uh, medical provision, uh, medical services provision, and used the case of contraception to consider this. The article pointed out a couple of things uh, that were obvious and a couple of things not so obvious. A couple of things are obvious that bias is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and, yeah, shock. Stop the presses. Um, and But, of course, then pointing out that if bias occurs in the um, context of um, uh, medical advice um, but we 're on to something quite serious um, when um, uh, they the researchers chose contraception they were very deliberate about choosing an aspect of medical advice that is highly charged with issues of race with class with um, uh, social economic status and of course um, contraception is very very gendered um, they interviewed um, uh, 51 uh, healthcare professionals, about 80% of those were doctors and nurses, and the uh, the remaining 20, the balance was um, other healthcare professionals, but doctors and nurses predominantly. And um, by looking at the responses that the uh, doctors and nurses, the health professionals gave, they were able to identify four particular strategies um, that they um uh, were observing these, these health professionals use to deal with bias. Um, in other words, these weren't strategies um, that were made explicit by the interviewees themselves, it was the researchers, you know, defining these four strategies, trying to categorise the different types of responses that the interviewers gave. And they came up with four. They came up with scientific rationale. They came up with employing safe bias. They came up with um, standardisation of um, counselling and, ironically, paradoxically, um, we 'll get to it um, patient centered care was actually an attempt to uh, deal with um, with bias um, so one takeaway was that uh, these people being interviewed they recognized bias exists they weren 't trying to pretend that there 's no bias, but they were employing strategies, whether um, you know conscious or unconscious they were employing strategies to deal with it and um, the researchers determined that Paradoxically, using any of these strategies might actually exacerbate, <laughs> rather than, rather than mitigate, um, the um, uh, the experience of the patients. So let me just tell you a little bit about those four. Um, give you some examples of some things that um, were being said. So. Scientific rationale was a bias that um, they were talking about in its worst form is something like a eugenics program where you say the science says that um, uh, the, the lifespan of a, a child is significantly reduced at birth if they're born with X, Y, Z issues, so there might be a eugenic argument for termination um, and things like that. Um, there was bias around the use of language, so where, where um, words like... Um, Culture was being used as a, uh, a proxy for race mm. and um, lifestyle was being used as a, a, a word, as a word, you know, somebody's lifestyle was used as a proxy for um, risk management. Um and so if you think about that in terms of contraception if you say oh somebody's lifestyle indicates that this should be the contraception they use or the contraception they shouldn't use then the advice is going to go down a particular direction you know so if Ken is somebody um reliably able to take a pill every day or mm. you know whatever the regime might be
1: Right, you say oh, their lifestyle is not conducive to that, that right. option. right yeah yeah yeah, right. yeah and
0: so the advice coming from the professional might might um, um might influence that um and um i just lost my train of thought there briefly well, there, there but was the
1: the other ones uh you mentioned which was
0: so there was a scientific rationale that, oh there's the um uh there's the safe bias the bias that gets used where you might talk about whether somebody is educated you know, the health professional speaking whether the person is um educated or uneducated insured or uninsured mm-hmm. and what what taking that kind of thinking might mean for the way that you, you speak with somebody about a particular issue. And
2: I certainly change the way I talk to people. If I'm treating another doctor, you can discuss things in less colloquial and like with more jargon compared to someone if you, with
0: no medical experience whatsoever. Dr Neo as the one most recently um, graduated. Mm. Does bias feature in curriculum at all?
2: Uh, it doesn't as much as it should. I have taken it... There's actually quite good um, good podcasts for medical um, professionals out there. Like I Am Reasoning uh, is a really good one that approaches bias on a very regular basis. And they've just finished up their their run of episodes. But I would suggest that you do go listen to their episodes on, um, on bias. It's one of the things that I've taken away from them is type 1 versus type 2 reasoning. And I try to employ that on a daily basis where type 1 is fast, easy thinking pattern recognition but it's very very susceptible to bias whereas type two is uh you're taking back and it's you're thinking about a topic actively slow and consciously Um, it's meant to be more resistant to bias um but you know if um, we are running out of time but i would
0: suggest people listening to i am reasoning for a very in-depth look at bias thanks sorry to cut you off there um dr nia and um dr sharma thank you to you both um for your Work and, com- and camaraderie this morning here on Radiotherapy. Big thanks to Professor M- Melissa Wake uh, from uh, Gen V Project. Check us out on socials. We'll be back with you, Dr. Nick, next week. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.